A quick note before we begin. This episode was recorded the week of October 16th, several days after the brutal Hamas attack in Israel. Government authorities there say that more than 1,400 Israelis were killed. Since then, Israel has responded with airstrikes in Gaza and military operations in the West Bank. As a result, more than 5,000 Palestinians have been killed, nearly half of them children. That's according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. This is a story that's changing by the minute, and Amija has put out a statement condemning the death of journalists in Palestine, Israel, and Lebanon. And has expressed concern over the treatment MENA journalists are facing while covering the conflict. We'll provide a link in the show notes to the full statement. And obviously, the conversation we're about to have isn't easy. So please listen with care. It feels impossible to make sense of what's happening right now. The violence unfolding in Gaza and Israel, the ferocity of protests around the world. It's soul-crushing, knowing so much of this is outside your control. One thing we as journalists can control is what we say and how we say it. And yet, we're seeing a deluge of unverified reports and disinformation that have led to real consequences. So we wanted to ask ourselves, what role have we, as journalists, played in this conflict? Now, normally on this show, we try to talk to people in the media with ties back to the MENA region about what it means to be from there and do this work. And we had actually already done an interview with Abdullah Fayyad a few months ago. It was for an upcoming episode. He's written a series of editorials for the Boston Globe, Work that's made him a Pulitzer Prize finalist. We initially talked to him about this letter that came out two years ago. It was signed by 500 journalists from almost every major news outlet in the U.S. The letter was a critique of how Western media covers Palestine. And in that first interview, we had asked Abdullah about whether or not he felt the letter had done its job. But looking around at what's happening right now, we realized we needed to bring him back and ask him that question again. I'm Najib Amini. And I'm Nadia Hamdan. This is Reorient. A podcast from the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association, or AMIJA for short. And now our conversation with Abdullah Fayyad. So I think we just want to begin with a check-in. Abdullah, how are you doing right now? Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking. Um, It's a very devastating and heartbreaking time for many reasons, but chief among them, the horrors of hearing what's happening in Gaza every day, day after day, morning after morning, I think is a huge emotional toll for any Palestinian around the world and obviously tragic for the people living in Gaza. Just incredibly horrifying, hard to imagine. So it's not a good time. It's not a good time for, for anybody. I mean, but like, how are you, how, like, yeah, how are you doing personally? I mean, thankfully my family is safe. Thankfully they're doing fine. Uh, but you can only worry about where things go and just, Conceptually, just, you know, these are the days that we've always anticipated. 
and worried about. And when they're happening, it's incredibly disorienting and disconcerting and demoralizing. And, you know, here when you're in the U.S. and you're Palestinian, you know, having to go through the motions of proving our humanity again, trying to convince people that we too are a people who are deserving of rights no matter what, is an incredibly demoralizing experience. I mean, before we move on, I just want to express, like, I'm, I'm sorry that you're going through this. Like, I, the, No, I mean, I appreciate the amount, that. The, and, amount, the amount of times I've had to, you know, say this to a few people that I know, that it's just like, yeah. there are no words. It's, I don't, like, I don't know... I don't know what you can say to what's happening. No, I know, and I, I appreciate what you're saying. And it also kind of, for me, when I when I hear that, you know, it feels good and it's reinforcing. And at the same time, all I can think of is like, while this is happening to us Palestinians around the world, it's just at the end of the day, it's it's the people who are dying, the people who are getting bombarded in Gaza. And it's like... <laughs> as perverse as this sounds, because there is no such thing as privilege in this context, it's still a privilege to be able to have these injustices be our experience, obviously, then death and destruction day in and day out, with thousands of people dying, watching your kids die. That's, that's you know, just at the root of this that is making it all the more difficult to process. Can you give us a timeline of when you first saw this happen you know, when you were first getting the alert, the first texts you were sending, how were you processing this in real time? So it was actually late night here on the East Coast, and I was going to bed. My girlfriend was on her phone, and, you know, she said, Israel has declared war on Gaza, or Israel has declared war. And in my mind, we're always at war. (laughs) This is You know, there's always a war on Palestinians. I fell back asleep. I didn't understand the gravity of what had happened. I didn't hear about about the attack. That all came the morning after. And the scale of the attack was so large that obviously any observer knew that the response was just going to be so disproportionate and devastating that it was, you know, instantly scary to think about. So... That anticipation of what's to come was really unnerving, especially as time went on and you're just waiting and waiting to see what the response is going to be. And and then eventually Israel strikes and then it strikes again and then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And no matter how much you anticipate it, no matter how much you're expecting it, no matter how inevitable this destruction seems... When you see it unfold day by day, there's just this kind of just hopelessness that just sets in. You know, when I talk to this about people and, you know, they're checking in on me how how we're doing, I always end by saying, like, I, I just hope this all ends soon. And when I say that, I know that I'm saying that, but I don't really mean it in a way that I, I, I don't feel optimistic that it will. Like, those are words that really... I'm saying them because I do really feel them. I really hope that this ends now, but I really don't feel like it will. And so it's just the idea of knowing that this is just going to get worse and not knowing when it's going to stop, that's just the really demoralizing and scary part of this all. In, 
in the immediate aftermath of it, of course, you know, life here goes on and you are expected to show up to work and keep it together while you know that this is going to be, when you're a journalist, the top conversation of the day at work. And that's an, a difficult thing to navigate because a lot of people I work with know people there. And the conversations are hard and you have to be very careful and sensitive about how you talk about it while also feeling so deeply angry about what's happening, but trying your best not to show that anger so that you're taken more seriously. And that's always really difficult whenever uh, there's an escalation. Yeah. I did want to just take a moment to appreciate what you just said, which is how difficult I know that must be for you and so many other journalists who are watching this happen in real time, but then having to put forward a, I don't have feelings about this thing that I clearly have feelings about. Um, I don't think we stop to appreciate how difficult that is for a lot of journalists when things like this happen. Yeah. And you know, the, the sad thing about this all is that we understand this issue by being Palestinian more than anybody, but we're just viewed as inherently biased journalists when it comes to this. And so time and again, we are trying to prove that we can be objective, even if we are feeling this personally, because we know people who are suffering, because we ourselves are suffering, watching this happen. Regardless of that, we have an objective understanding of the occupation, of where the violence comes from. Our side of the story matters. We know people's experience. And all we want is for people to take our word as seriously as anybody else's. Just like they think if you're detached, like because you're in some impartial observer, you might be a more reliable source on this. That's entirely not true. But we face this time and again whenever something like this happens or is in the news cycle. Abdullah, we actually spoke to you a few months ago and we were working on this episode and we wanted to have you on to talk about a letter that was sent out about two years ago. And I wonder if you could describe what that letter was and given the coverage of what's happening today, do you think that letter has been effective? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the letter was over two years ago now, and we got over 500 journalists from newsrooms across the country to sign this open letter to U.S. media about what we viewed as journalistic malpractice in covering the occupation over time and just how biased and how baked in that bias is in U.S. media when it comes to telling the story of Palestinians under occupation. And over 500 journalists signed this, many of them from mainstream news outlets. I think we had almost every mainstream news outlet represented in there, from the New York Times, the Washington Post, to CNN, to The Wires. And it was a hopeful moment where we thought the newsrooms were going to be reflective. But what I will say is now, after this past week, it doesn't seem like any of those lessons were absorbed in newsrooms. One case in point was, this is a quote from the letter, quote, too often 
media outlets uncritically repeat Israeli military claims about its assault on Gaza without asking for evidence or proof, despite clear examples of where Israeli officials spread false information, end quote. In this past week, we have seen cable news networks, newspapers, online publications repeat what the Israeli military is saying with very little skepticism, if any at all. And that has actually helped drive the narrative that Israel is using to justify its military campaign in Gaza. And I think that is one of the biggest problems here that newsrooms aren't reckoning with, is that you cannot take what the Israeli military says, what the Israeli state says, what Israeli officials say at face value. You have to interrogate them with the level of skepticism that any self-respecting journalist would give to any source. We have seen time and again the Israeli military lie about what it's doing. You know, they lied about... Shireen. Yeah, Shireen Abu Akli. When she was shot, they blamed Palestinian fighters. But as more evidence came out, it was very clear that it was an Israeli soldier that shot her, and I, eventually they admitted it. So we've seen them lie, and we've even seen them lie in this past week, and yet newsrooms still haven't learned the lesson. So it's sad to say that... I don't know how positive the impact was. I always cling on to the hope that there's a long-term impact with these kinds of letters. It's like there's a crack in the window, and we're just hoping to open it further. But as of right now, it doesn't seem like newsrooms have really reckoned with how to cover this fairly. I mean, I I hate to be this redundant, but I think about what happened after the death of George Floyd and how that perhaps was a tipping point where, at least for a moment— it seemed like there were some conversations happening in newsrooms. Did anything actually happen? Did any, like, what's the long-term impact of that? I guess to be determined. But that dynamic of like, well, let's question how we report about the police in this country. This is yet another instance of the same kind of approach, which is let's just do a better job at what we do as journalists. I think that there were lessons taken out of George Floyd's murder in newsrooms and police coverage and crime reporting and how we can't just be stenographers as a newspaper to just write up some police report and just take that as fact. You know, police, like the military, it's a powerful government agency, lies all the time, and it gets away with it. And we have to be really skeptical of it. I don't know, I don't think that newsrooms across the country have fully learned that lesson. But I think there has been a change in that regard. I think a lot of editors are more careful about that. I think a lot of writers are. On the issue of Palestine and on the issue of the occupation of Palestine, I don't think that there has been a difference in spite of a lot of journalists in America starting to think of listening to communities affected, listening to marginalized groups more and accepting their language as legitimate. You know, even on a basic level, newsrooms are so uncomfortable with using the term, the, the, the word Palestine. It's not AP style to use the word Palestine in most contexts. So we don't say the occupation of Palestine. We just refer to it in mainstream newsrooms as the Israeli occupation. Of What is it occupying? Oh, some territories. What is that territory? It's Palestinian territory. Well, what do Palestinians call it? You know, we call it Palestine. Why can't journalists use our language? Why can they only use the language of the oppressor and not the oppressed? And, you know, that kind of skepticism, that kind of thinking still isn't really getting enough attention in newsrooms because we're seeing the same thing happen again. You know, the comfort 
to use the language that Israel prefers, kind of just deferring to that as the default, the safer option, you know, that's an injustice to the people that you're covering. You know, you have to use the language that Palestinians are using and use it as legitimate language because we are a people who are oppressed. We are a people who are suffering under these consequences. And you, you can only really understand our story if you can understand the terms that we use. You know, you have now human rights groups, for example, international human rights groups over the last several years, as well as Israeli ones, finally call what the Israeli regime is, which is it's an apartheid regime. Palestinians have been using that term for decades and no one was listening. So still, even though now even Israeli human rights groups use that term, you know, newsrooms have barely even covered it as an apartheid state. They haven't put that label on it. They haven't even covered some of the reports. And, you know, that's kind of an abdication of our responsibility as journalists, because how can our readers really understand the kind of struggle of Palestinians if they can't hear the language that we're using. Abdullah, I think one of the first things I noticed in the early days of reporting, and, you know, I'm I'm just going to asterisk this and say there are incredible reporters trying to do incredible work. This is not an indictment of all. We are not a monolith. Of course, of course. <laughs> and... Just to be crystal clear, we are not condoning the actions of Hamas. No no one here is condoning the actions of Hamas. The question I have for you, though, is when we see articles describe the attack as, quote, without precedent or, quote, unprovoked, I wonder what you make of that framing. I mean, that's that's kind of that was what inspired me to write my article, which was to talk about the root cause of the violence or the root cause of what people kept referring to as the quote unquote cycle of violence. So people are just talking and condemning the cycle of violence, but they're not talking about where it starts. And one thing that really bothered me was this labeling of the attack as quote unquote unprovoked. Now, whatever it is that you think of Hamas or its attack, to call it unprovoked is to deny the reality that Palestinians face every day, which is a very violent one. It's to say that the violence that we face day in and day out, the bombardment campaigns, the massive death tolls, the terror that we live in is not violence at all, that the status quo is acceptable. And that just obfuscates, it obfuscates the context that this attack happened in. It's not to condone violence against civilians or violence at all if you talk about the context, but to just say that it's unprovoked is, is just devoid of any reality. And that's, that's, that is misinforming. That's misinforming readers. It's not giving them a good understanding of why this happened. I've tried to be very careful about how to digest a lot about what's happening or what's going on. I think there's a lot of information that's being shared, I guess, online. There's a lot of what's the, what cable TV is saying, a lot of articles that are coming out. And yet, at the same time, I've kind of kept my eye a little bit to be like, oh, what are the you know TV channels saying? Or, and I think in that exercise, like I've been able to catch a few times where there have been significant, and I'm being generous here, like slip-ups. Let's take the, the beheadings angle. 
and how that was never kind of proven. There was no evidence. And it was it started with one report and then it kind of echoed out throughout the world to where CNN had repeated it as if it was fact. To the point that our, the president repeated it as fact. Yeah. I think that's... That was a yeah, that was huge to me. What bothered me about that lie and the speed at which it spread or that that piece of that piece of misinformation was I just didn't understand why there was a need to sensationalize the already sensational. The attack did harm civilians and you know, innocent kids were killed. That is sensational. Why do you have to include the level of despicable behavior that illustrates it in just such an inhuman way when it's not even true in that level. Now, that was kind of a story where if that is proven to be true, that's worth telling. But why run with it so quickly when your only source is the Israeli military, uh, an institution that you know is more than capable of spreading lies and making things up on the fly? So... That, I think, was just one of the most shocking ones because it was so sensational and dangerous. And I think part of the reason why there has been such an escalated kind of or an escalation of racism that Palestinians, Arabs, and you know non-Arab Muslims have been facing in the West. But then I think there's like the initial report and then there's the walk back. But essentially what happens is you repeat, you repeat the, the lie or you, re- you repeat the unverified report or incident, and then the next day, oh, we made a comment on this broadcast. We weren't able to independently right. verify that. We're walking that back. But by that point, I mean, what happens? And what is happening, particularly in the context of what is unfolding right now? To put it succinctly, like, do corrections and retractions mean much in a situation that's unfolding like this? Obviously we understand that journalists will get things wrong. We get things wrong. I've gotten things wrong. And we always have to have the humility to admit errors when we make them. I think the reason it's so difficult is because of this pressurized 24-hour news cycle where everything has to develop quickly and we have to put out information so fast that any piece of information becomes newsworthy even if it's unverified because some quote-unquote legitimate institution is is making an accusation. That becomes news in and of itself, whether or not it's verified. And so we just have to figure out a way as an industry, when something is unfolding so quickly, how we want to go about doing live feeds and live news and any kind of live broadcast is what we choose to interrogate and what we choose to air as potentially newsworthy versus what we just want to, you know, this is a really kind of salacious, sensational claim. Let's investigate it for another day before we we talk about it. And if you do want to discuss it, just kind of how you can couch it with enough emphasis that it is completely unverified and how you can do that in a way that is still effective so that people don't take it as, as fact. I haven't figured out that answer myself, you know, but I always caution against being so quick to report something that you just think is inherently newsworthy, especially when it's so, so crazy. I think something that I feel as we're talking and what I felt trying to follow all of this is how words matter. And especially in a situation like this that is unfolding in real time, that has real consequences in how one group justifies violence over another. 
the word evil is thrown around and the the official statement from the Israelis in the beginning referring to them as animals. I mean, all of this language, we're seeing it right now in the way that people are at each other's throats, it feels like, depending on, you know, what side, quote unquote, you fall on. And I'm wondering how you would ask journalists to navigate those kinds of issues, right? When officials are using really loaded language. Like, how do you contextualize that? How do you make sense of that? How do you report that while also trying to avoid the hysteria? I think that sometimes as journalists, when there's a contentious issue, any issue, be it the occupation or be it a bike lane popping up in a neighborhood, when something is really contentious, we feel inherently that we just that we just want to be kind of neutral, right? not actually objective. We don't want to offend anybody or or rush to judgment about anything. Obviously, the more sensitive the topic, the more we recoil. But I think as journalists, like one thing that we often forget is why we do this work of uncovering truth. And I think that's something that we have to keep asking ourselves, like, why do we care about telling the truth? What are the principles that we have beyond just being truth tellers? Like, why is the truth important? And I think those fundamental principles are kind of liberal ideals of believing in freedom, believing in people not suffering from injustice. You know, that we do believe in the cause of justice, that we do believe that people ought to be free from oppression. That's that's the point of telling the truth, right? It's to make sure that no one is facing kind of unjust treatment. So... I, th- I don't think that we as journalists ought to shy from understanding why we tell the truth. And that's kind of the reason I say that is it's important background when it comes to the rhetoric that you're talking about and how we report and write about it. One article that I would love to see is a thorough uncovering and just laying it out since it's been also public of all the incendiary rhetoric that Israeli officials, be they politicians or be they military officials, all the incendiary rhetoric that they've used to dehumanize Palestinians in just the last week alone. Like you referenced the human animals. Like Netanyahu mentioned, the children of light, children of darkness, the war between the civilized and the savage. All all of this stuff that we are people of the jungle, right? Like, kind of lay out all of these incendiary statements and contextualize them in the the context of other oppressive regimes that have had genocidal inclinations. Contextualize it in this broader story of ethnic cleansing that Palestinians have been facing and why this rhetoric is so dangerous. So I think that's what's important. It's not even a debate about, oh, is this word racist? Should we use the word racist in the story to describe calling Palestinians human animals? Is Is that racist? Of course it's racist. And I don't care about the debate about whether or not we want to label that as racist within a story. What I care about is what it means to call people human animals. What does that mean? And there's a real danger of mass death when this rhetoric is used, especially when it's used by a military with so much power and capability to cause destruction. So I think that's the level of context that ought to be there. And that's the kind of story that I would love to read from a mainstream newsroom. And it could well exist. I'm not saying that it doesn't. I just haven't come across it if if it does. I mean, this might sound elementary, but what is the story that these words have now told or are telling? 
because it, you, you mentioned it's not just one incident. It's not just one word. It's not just right. it's not just clashes from a few years ago. This is now a series of words that can, again, terrible example that I'm giving, but they construct sentences. These sentences go into paragraphs. Th- these words contribute to what kind of story that is currently being told. Absolutely. I mean, and, and it's not just unique to this moment. I mean, this kind of dehumanizing language has been used against Palestinians my entire lifetime and also, um, you know, for uh, a very, very long time. You know, it's essentially used to create a level of abstraction when it comes to the Palestinian people. And I pointed this out um, kind of just as like a level of bias baked into the media. I think there was a Reuters article that talked about the number of loved ones that died who were Israeli from the attack. And in the same article, it was like these bullets, and the other one was just like, and 1,200 Palestinians have died. So Israelis were loved ones, and Palestinians were just a number. You know, that's a much more, like, innocent mistake than the dehumanizing language. But that is dehumanizing in and of itself, because everybody who dies is a loved one. And why Israelis were afforded that language of being loved to understand the pain of loss as a reader, whereas Palestinians were just an abstract number. And that broader dehumanizing language and the reason it's really important to interrogate what calling us human animals actually means, it's to create that distance, that cognitive dissonance that people can have that such a large death toll, over a thousand kids have been killed in Gaza in just about a week. But you need to create this kind of level of cognitive dissonance for people to not feel that empathy. And when you talk about people as animals, when you talk about them as people of the jungle or children of darkness or people who are just purely evil, when you create that kind of language about a people, it becomes much easier to kill them because it becomes much harder for people to sympathize with them. So people can sympathize viscerally with a massacre of kids. Here in this country, we rightfully mourned the death of over a dozen kids in Sandy Hook because they were massacred for no reason. It was a tragedy. And we felt it viscerally. And I still remember the day that happens. It was heartbreaking. And it unfortunately happens still again like it did in Texas last year. So those stories we feel so viscerally and we react to Unfortunately, it hasn't led to change, but people resist accepting this status quo. Like, the people resist it. They're up in arms. They're in protest. They're pushing for change. But when you create this level of abstraction about a people that they're just kind of this, like, subhuman population, then you can hear a story about over a thousand kids getting slaughtered in a week And you can still go on about your life and just accept that as collateral damage. That is unacceptable collateral damage. You know, and sorry I get animated about this, but it's because we're talking about the most innocent lives possibly lived and not being able to be lived out. And there is no sympathy or little sympathy for them because of the language that's used about Palestinians by Israeli officials that receives very little pushback from their allies. It does not receive the necessary contextualization from the U.S. media. Like, we need to interrogate this language and call it out for just how dangerous it is, you know? Because we're just going to see this past week repeat over and over and over again until this catastrophe just becomes all the more catastrophic. 
You know, I don't even know how to describe it, but that's that's where it leads to, and that's why it's so important. What do you think journalists should be doing that perhaps they're not? Nadia, I think you said this before up top. Like, we're not a monolith, and I agree. I think there's a lot of amazing work that's being produced right now that's getting into the heart of what's happening. But there is a sense, like, I think after, I don't know, sometimes you'll you'll see officials in conversation or in interviews with journalists, and they'll bring up this kind of rhetoric, or they'll bring up terms like Hamas is using human shields, or they'll bring up that beheadings example. And there'll be no pushback. Like, there's nothing, no pushback whatsoever. And I, yeah. I kind of- Yeah, like at what point does that become journalistic malpractice? I mean, there are two things that I will say here to your point, Najib, I think. First is, I think we as critics in the media, um, I call myself a media critic, even though I'm not technically one, I just am one on Twitter. I think one thing I could do better is also point out the stories that are well done. Because I do think even in all mainstream outlets, we see very good, good stories come out from really good and talented journalists. And it kind of shows that as you say, we're not a monolith. People think differently about how to approach this in the industry, but also within newsrooms. And we see successes and we see massive failures. I think where it leads to the level of quote-unquote journalistic malpractice is there's room for mistake, and especially in a live interview with a politician, you're not going to be able to just like litigate every single word that you use or, or you know, you kind of have to pick your battles. And I, I completely understand that But if there's like a repeated pattern, which I think it's safe to say that there is, that we have certain truths in the media that we accept to include in a news story, not necessarily an opinions piece, as a truth, when in fact it's actually much more complicated than that and there's much more nuance to it. Like as you say, the category of human shields, like what does it mean to be a human shield and and how does international law even consider how militaries are supposed to approach instances where there are human shields, and whether or not that accusation about Hamas in Gaza, one of the most densely populated places in the world, is actually a legitimate talking point about human shields. What does that mean? We just accept it as a truth, but this is urban warfare. When Israel talks about human shields, it's talking about Hamas being just based in Gaza. That's what happens when you kennel 2.2 million people in a small strip of land is inevitably there are going to be civilians. There is a definition for human shield. It does not seem like that has been proven to be the case in Gaza. Yet these are truths that we just accept. And I think that's where the journalistic malpractice is, is not necessarily just one instance from one interviewer or one reporter. It's when we as an industry accept something as truth when it's actually not. And I'm not here to be an expert on on what the definition of human shield is, and I'm not. I'm learning about this now, but it's something to be interrogated and not said as a truth, because that's that's what's used to justify the killings of thousands of people. That oh, this is just you know it's devastating. Even the people who are you know sympathetic to Israel, you know, they say they'll admit it's devastating, but they're capable of justifying it because they say, you know, this is just collateral damage. This is what happens when people use human shields. And at the end of the day, a military has to secure its country. And if, you know, there are humans in the way, so, so be it. That's the cost of war. But that's that's not a truth that we must accept. I wanted to ask you about the fear that many journalists, I mean, a lot of people in general who have spoken out critical of Israel or in support of Palestine, getting doxxed, getting fired, 
it seems like I'm seeing these stories happen quite frequently, especially in the last few weeks. What do you say to people who say, I'm scared to come forward because look what keeps happening? I think that's the really dangerous part of this. And anybody who cares about free speech and here in the U.S., anybody who cares about the First Amendment should always be really, really uncomfortable when that kind of self-censorship exists because you have to ask yourself, why does it exist? Why is there this chilling effect that people are afraid of speaking out? And it's because there are actual consequences that people face for just saying fundamental truths or sharing their experience or sharing their views. And I think that's, that's you know, really sad. And that's unfortunately what contributes to obfuscating the occupation and the truths around the occupation, because people are afraid of using the language that actually viscerally depicts the truth. It might be more uncomfortable for people to hear, but it's more truthful, it's more honest, it's more accurate. But we shy away from those words because we don't want to be quote-unquote canceled. Why is it that newsrooms don't feel comfortable using the term apartheid when we can see with documented evidence from several human rights groups, as well as what Palestinian civil society has been saying for a long time, that what the regime is like, what the occupation is like, fits the definition of apartheid under international law. It's a crime against humanity. It fits that definition. And why are we uncomfortable with using that language? And part of that is this culture of fear around talking more honestly about this issue, especially if you're Palestinian. I don't know how to root that out, but the one thing that I will say is that any real defender of the First Amendment and any real journalist worth their salt would call that out for what it is, you know, and that's censorship and that's obfuscating the truth. So long as we have journalists, whether they agree with the Palestinian cause, whether they agree with the Palestinian point of view, obviously it's not a monolith, all that caveats, but whether they agree with us or not, that they can stand up for us when we express ourselves and afford us that right. We need allies, not as like allies for the Palestinians. We need allies of free speech. And we are in an industry that you know, it, we're a First Amendment industry, and everybody needs to be very serious about what that means. You know, that's that's the support that I think creates a much more a much healthier culture around being more truthful. What advice would you have for, say, maybe a? a younger staffer at a newsroom or someone that might feel a bit uncomfortable that's trying to navigate through all this. And their newsroom might be publishing certain things that they have in question, or they might be working on a story that is getting resistance from their newsroom leadership. What would you say to that person? When this comes up, you kind of feel this unique responsibility to speak up because there are so few of us in these rooms. And so there's this burden that you have, this is your role now. You're in this room and you have to be there. What I would say is, especially for younger staffers, is I don't think you always have to push yourself to be the hero. You know, I, you know there are times and circumstances that people have to consider their own personal lives, and I think that's legitimate. You shouldn't feel bad about yourself for choosing to pick your battles, right? You, and you have to learn how to pick your battles. 
Obviously, though, this is our responsibility as journalists is to get the facts right. And it means that when you have a problem, try to express it to your editors, try to express it to your newsroom in however which way you can. Don't feel bad about wanting to avoid an uncomfortable situation, especially when you're less established and have less job security and all that stuff. I completely understand it, and I think all Palestinians completely understand those circumstances. But when you think something is really wrong and you feel that injustice, get it off your chest. Find a way to get it off your chest. Talk to your editor. Try to speak confidentially with people to get them to understand why they're getting it wrong and try to push through it. But yeah, I just I just want to be sure that people don't feel bad about themselves for learning how to pick their battles. It takes time to figure out how to pick your battles. So it's a delicate balance for sure. And it's, it, you know, every person is different. And so it's hard advice to give in broad terms. And every manager is different. Every newsroom is different. So everybody has to figure out how to navigate it. It's going to be a similar question, but redirected towards those leading newsrooms. What would you like to see as the ideal conversation you would have as a newsroom coming from the top down? I think the responsibility, and this is why I was saying, encouraging people not to feel bad about themselves or feel guilty in any way, because at the end of the day, the responsibility is on management. It comes from the top down. It also goes back to my last answer before that about finding allies for people who believe in First Amendment principles, that it's it's not on us always to be the truth tellers. We require people to stand up for us. That's the only way we can be able to have these conversations comfortably without always fearing like our job is on the line. And so I think the best thing that editors can do, especially in big publications, is to just lead honest and open conversations where people can feel comfortable expressing themselves. They can even feel comfortable getting in heated, albeit respectful, debates, but not feel bad or scared about expressing where they think the story should be or what we should focus on. So I think the first thing an editor should do is show humility of not knowing how to approach this because it's true. None of us know how to approach it. When news breaks, we don't know how we're going to cover the story. We're figuring it out. And especially when an editor has Palestinians in the room, they have to be sensitive. I mean, it's true. With they, they don't have it. But also to think about their staff as well. How are you making sure that their voice is included, that they feel comfortable actually expressing themselves in an honest way that can help inform your coverage? I mean, isn't that why we talk to sources? That's why we report out stories is to prove our hypothesis right or prove it wrong understand and learn whether or not our suspicion of something is true. That's why we talk to sources. That's why you have reporters and editors in a newsroom, is like to talk about this all together and figure it out. You just have to foster that good environment. Not everybody's good at that, but if you're in management, if you're a manager, that's, that's what you have to do. One thing I can't help but feel is the sense of deja vu, where... It's kind of like we're going through the early years of post 9-11, build up to the Iraq war, all kind of happening in this concentrated couple of days, couple of weeks. And on top of watching the news or reading what's happening and coming across some of the mishaps, so to speak, and I'm being generous here, there is this kind of uncomfortable feeling that sits with me in my own stomach to be like this is the industry that I work in 
and not even you know doing the oh centering it on us as journalists and all that, but even just as a, on an individual level, where I just also kind of feel so helpless about everything that's happening. I hate to ask you, but like, what do you do about that? Or I, I, I and I, I, and I feel so silly asking you right now, but like. I can't. I, I imagine I'm not the only one that feels this way. I, I mean, Nadia, I don't know how you feel, but yeah, I think so many of us are feeling that feeling of helplessness, even even working in the industry. And I know even those who are probably at the front lines of this, tweeting and writing day by day, covering this conflict. I guess, yeah, I I, I have. I think that's part of the issue is we're like struggling to find the words to even say. What do we do with this feeling that I know so many of us are feeling in this moment? And again, this 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 insane expectation that journalists don't have feelings about this and can stay objective and don't have emotions tied to this. Or how do you carry that weight and still do what you do every day? Yeah, I mean, I I I, I really like the fact that you brought this up because. The reality for me is this isn't a question I just think when this happens. You know, this is a question that I think journalists think of all the time is like, why am I here? Why are we doing this? Are we actually changing the world for the better or are we just upholding the status quo for the worse? And that's always a question I have. And I think we as an industry, particularly when it comes to the mainstream, we look back at examples of success of when we actually were able to deliver accountability and hold people accountable getting the president to resign. We we have these stories of successes, like here at, at, the, at the Boston Globe, the, the Catholic Church scandal and covering all the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church was an amazing force of journalism. And you always remember those stories and you say, this is why we do it, to uncover truth, to make people's lives better, to free people from injustice. And I always wonder, like, is that, are those like aberrations? Are those outliers to the everyday? And is the everyday upholding the status quo? And, you know, do like what outweighs the other? And in instances like this, obviously, you start to feel very cynical because it's just like you say, this loop. You know, we wrote that open letter two years ago and the media is making, even though it had signatories from newsrooms across the country, newsrooms are still making the, the same mistakes over and over again. And... They are undermining the narrative of the oppressed while empowering the narrative of the oppressor. That's upholding the status quo for the worse. And you have to ask yourself always, like, am I making a difference? Does it make a difference if I'm in this chair or if somebody else is? And what I will say is, like, as hard as it is, the reason I'm still here and the reason I'm still in journalism is because a, I think I have the an optimism bias. Like, I think I'm always optimistic that there's possibility for long-term change and that things take time, but presence of people like me in a newsroom does make a difference. And then there are times like this past week, I've written one article about this, and I've tweeted a lot about this, probably more than I should, but I've gotten a lot of feedback from people. And the feedback on that article in particular was overwhelmingly positive. I, of course, got the cynical hate mail that was very racist and kind of disgusting. But I also got a ton of letters from a whole group of people that, like, from different 
walks of life. I heard from Palestinians who felt vindicated reading that in the Boston Globe. Like they, they, it was like a cathartic kind of like they felt good finally seeing their side of the story in the mainstream press. And that was nice to hear. I heard from American Jews who read the story who have their troubled feelings with the occupation and with Israel and some people who are anti-Zionist, but some of them still consider themselves Zionist. But like, you know, they're more critical of Israel than they used to be as kids. They're going through a transformation and they really appreciated the context that I gave. They really appreciated me, including my personal story in this as well. I even heard from people who are kind of not at all sympathetic to Palestinians at the very least, sending me civil emails and thanking me for sharing my perspective and not denying my experience, but saying that it helped them better understand where we're coming from, even though they then followed that email with their list of grievances and disagreements. But it was coming from a place where it felt like they actually learned something, like it felt like they actually got something out of it. And that, to me, felt like this is why I'm here, because yeah, this isn't going to change the industry. It's not going to change Americans' view on it. But one article like mine, another at The Times, another at The Post, another at Vox, another, you know, on CNN, another at MSNBC, and you hear start to hear this all play out. And over time, you start to change people's minds. Because what we're trying to do in this entire conversation that we've been having is about providing context. And I can't help but think how much worse the context would be if we weren't here. Because then where the hell will the context come from if nobody's fighting for it? So it's an uphill battle. And sometimes it's it's really kind of demoralizing and can feel really cynical. And I've certainly many times thought about different careers and how you can have better impact and whether we're actually pushing against the status quo rather than reinforcing it. But Surprisingly, in this last week, as infuriating as it is in U.S. media to, to, to see this play out in, in, in our papers, I've felt more sure of my place in this industry than before. And that's because of that kind of feedback. It's like, that's why we do this, you know? Um, yeah. However little difference it can make, it's like, that's, that's why we're here. And I think it reinforces my bias for optimism. I'll say that. I, I feel kind of weirdly uplifted or weirdly like motivated again right so so i i thank you for your thank you for your time but also just that (laughs) response and your thoughtfulness on this and again i'm sorry for everything that's happening i can't imagine any of it's easy um but no just thank you for being here and thank you for doing what you do hoping that all of your loved ones stay safe that you have support and thank you so much for agreeing to do this even though i know you know it's been a crazy hectic few weeks so we really appreciate it thank you guys and thanks for the thoughtful questions and of course all the care you put into this For those interested, the folks from Amija have put together a media resource guide to help newsrooms more accurately and critically cover issues related to Israel and Palestine. You can find a link to that and other stories and topics mentioned in our conversation in the show notes. Or go to amija.org. That's A-M-E-J-A dot org. This episode was produced by Najib Amini, me, Nadia Hamdan, and Suzanne Gaber. We do humbly ask if you found any of this conversation helpful or informative to share this episode with colleagues, editors, managers, and anyone else you think might appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening.